You are listening to an episode of the Technology Consulting Series on Design Talk. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jesus. And I am Oran. We are delighted to have Jefferson Kahik to talk with us today. Jeff works in financial services technology transformation, transformation for EY. So you're very welcome today, Jeff, to Smurfus. Would you like to just start by talking about maybe briefly just on your general background within technology and consulting? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks, uh, Alan, and thanks, Jesus and Oran. I'm, I'm actually really excited to be here. It's the first time I've done something in person externally for a little while. So uh, thanks for inviting me, and hopefully you all get something interesting from today. My background, I'm a computer scientist by trade. I studied in uh, Trinity College. I started a career in banking technology. I started as a software developer and I worked my way through. I worked for large UK and US banks here in Ireland, then in the UK, and I spent five years in Asia. Um, My work kind of started as development into project program management. When I worked in JP Morgan, we went through something like a a large-scale agile transformation, exposed me to things like Scrum, Kanban, and the less scaling methodology, um, or framework, I guess Craig would say. And uh, yeah, I really feel like I learned a lot on the job. In 2015, I returned to Ireland. Um, I've been working for different consulting firms since then and really helping Irish banks in particular solve some of the most complicated problems that they have, uh, technology-enabled and and technology-related. So uh, yeah, hopefully I've got some interesting experience and things to talk about today. So just, just, just before we dive into the questions, you mentioned Ireland and Asia. Just interestingly, were there any major contrast you saw between like the consulting approaches between the two? Well, I was a banking technology employee in Asia. I've, I've come to consulting relatively late in my career. I spent a decade working for banks in, in their technology departments. Um, yeah, look, I, I feel all the richer for having, um, and I mean that experientially rather than financially, uh, for having lived and worked in Asia for five years. I spent a year in Hong Kong. I spent a year in Singapore. I was exposed to many different East Asian and South Asian cultures. Um, you know, picked up little bits of Hindi and Tamil and Cantonese and Mandarin along the way. And, and I do think that travel and, and working abroad especially gives you a different perspective on things and uh, just makes you a more rounded human being. So uh, that's probably what I would take from it. Okay, that's really good. Uh, so for our first, first question, uh, what were your impressions when you first learned about the Spotify model? We were discussing this, art- this yeah. article today and we would like to hear your insights about it. Yeah, okay, so I've got some notes, um, just some, some talking points as well, right? I, I won't rely on them too much. Um, I first came across Henrik Knieberg when I worked in JP Morgan in about 2013, and I think it was his Agile Product Ownership in a Nutshell video that he published, which you guys have probably seen, it's 11 or 12 minutes. I think there's two parts, and it's, it's quite famous in its own right. Um, you know, we were really excited at the time when we saw what was happening. Uh, we were implementing a different scaling framework, which is called LESS, which is the large-scale Scrum model that was designed in, uh, by Craig Larman and Baz Voda. And we were implementing that within a product in JP Morgan. We had maybe 150, 200 engineers split across 12 different time zones in three different sites. And we were implementing, you know, really at the time, quite advanced technological and organizational approaches. So we were, um, you know, deploying to production environments twice a week. And we were operating on very high scale transaction uh, systems, you know, maybe 50 million transactions per day. So huge risk, huge challenge, huge complexity, and really working with some of the best people at the time. 
when the Knieberg stuff came out, we were always we were kind of in an MBA on the job mode, and we were always really open to some ideas. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that model. Um, I'm actually I'm always really wary of applying any model dogmatically or by the book. I think that each organization is is different, and each organization needs a a unique approach to help them to solve their problems in their way at their pace. So um, yeah, I think from a looking at the Spotify model in particular. I find it a really interesting thing. I like the principles within it. I think, and and you you guys are probably aware of um, the Jeremiah Lee uh, uh, kind of retort or counter where he went and actually interviewed a couple of of people that are, um, you know, have worked as coaches within Spotify. Um, I don't think there's a panacea, right? So I think Spotify is a really interesting framework to take things from. Um, I, I, I don't think it solves all the problems. And I think organizations that latch onto it and try to apply it blindly, I think they're in for some real pain depending on their context and their industry. Um, you know, a, a piece of thought leadership that we commissioned internally within EY was which scaling framework is right for my client. And to cut to the punchline, the answer is it depends, right? It really depends on what's the most important thing. Is it adaptability? Is it quality? Is it risk management? Is it speed? Is it culture? There's so many variables as to what and how you should apply. So yeah, I think Spotify, really good model, really interesting, like the principles, but we, but be wary of applying the practices blindly. Of course. So like even within JP Morgan, when you were implementing this, did you f- from our conversation, well, there were many points, but one such one was that when you have all this autonomy between the groups, it's great and creativity can be fostered. But did you find from experience that that could lead to a maybe unclear communication pattern with leadership? So perhaps an unclear goal or was that countered effectively? Yeah, I think in in any large organization, having clarity of vision is really important to unite everybody that's working within the teams. And I think regardless of your model, whether it's Spotify or less or safe or, you know, fundamentally, you need to help people understand what's the purpose, what's the mission and what's the vision of why they're coming to work every day. Um, Dan Pink, you've probably come across in Drive when he talks about autonomy, mastery and purpose. I think there are three, three really important things to have at the front of your mind as a leader in one of these organizations. My experience at JP Morgan was actually we were working around a really well-defined product set. We had some really strong product owners and product leaders. And we used the less framework and, and some, of the, some of the Spotify models to kind of segment the complexity. So the teams in Singapore took one wing of the product, uh, albeit end-to-end slices. The teams in um, Delaware on the east coast of the U.S. took another and the teams in Mumbai another. So um, there are always ways to organize and to um, kind of divide up the complexity. And I, I think complexity and uh, cognitive load is probably a key topic that I've spoken on in the past. But, um, you know, you need to be have a, a, have a human-centered approach and be reasonable with your engineering teams and everybody involved in your product. No one person can understand the tens of millions of lines of code that are associated with a large platform. No, of so it's about kind of organizing in, in the most sensible way that works best for the team that you've got. So you've mentioned that you like the team topologies approach. Yeah. Would you like to just dive into that maybe from a context of how it differs from Agile and similarities, contrasts, how it might be a development on it? Yeah, sure. So so for those that aren't aware, I'd, I'd recommend have a look at teamtopologies.com. 
It's a book that was published in September 2019. The authors are Manuel Pace and Matthew Skelton. I came across it actually through a conversation with a colleague that previously worked in ThoughtWorks, which is kind of a, a boutique agile thought leadership uh, consultancy firm. Um, for it, there's an excellent book by a gentleman there, Sriram Narayan, called Agile IT Organization Design. And that, I think, is neatly complementing uh, this concept, which is team topologies. Um, if I was to summarize it, it's not an alternative to Agile. It's a different way to organize IT teams around problems. And uh, fundamentally, it comes down to uh, four different team types, stream-aligned teams, enabling teams, complicated subsystem teams, and platform teams. So no matter how messy an organization might be, what you try to do is you map each of your teams to one of those four patterns. And then there are exactly three interaction modes for those four teams. So the teams can communicate either in a X as a service or anything as a service model, uh, which is effectively like defining team level APIs for interactions between teams, uh, or a facilitation mode or in a collaboration mode, which is something more longer term. So for me, it's a little bit of a Goldilocks kind of method where it's just enough definition to provide structure and to um, give guidance to teams and to maybe have reusable patterns and not have to explain everything every time to every team. Um, but it's probably also got enough freedom in the definition to enable teams to innovate and to adapt. And I think if I was to draw a spectrum of scaling frameworks for the delivery of solutions, you know, something like SAFE, the Scaled Agile Framework, is probably on the right-hand side of the spectrum. It's quite prescriptive. It's quite program management heavy. Um, you know, if you're a, a, an engineer working within a SAFE method, do you really feel like you have space to innovate? Not sure. And then on the other side of that spectrum is probably things like Less and Spotify. And I would say the, the team topologies model is maybe something towards that end, but maybe a little bit, you know, has a little bit of definition and structure, which is actually quite useful. So one of the things you mentioned about team topologies is that you are grouping into these four categories. Yeah. And this, that they're interacting these three, in these three particular ways. Yeah. How, given that it's like a, some sort of clustering problem where you're trying to put like these members in this particular team, how, are you going, how can you measure the success of the current configuration that you have in terms of the teams and the interactions that happen between them? That's, that's a really excellent question. Um, so I think the idea of having retrospectives at a team level and at a product level are very, very important. And I think, you know, Scrum would talk about doing that at the end of every sprint. Kanban recommends you do it frequently. You'll see retrospectives in the idea of Kaizen or continuous improvements incorporated in many um, delivery methodologies. And fundamentally, it comes down to having honest, frank conversations um, with your team members, but also comes down to making sure that you're measuring the right things. Okay, so there's, there's this phrase that says that which get, gets measured gets done. That can actually be a, um, a negative thing, right? If you, if you start to measure things that are perhaps quantitative in nature or perhaps not value-focused or not customer-focused, you can end up focusing on things that are... Um, you know, maybe interesting, but not the most important. So I think the idea of having a degree of autonomy, a degree of adaptation within the delivery method, albeit trying to apply some of the organization patterns that are defined, I think that's what you're really looking for there, and the idea of continuous improvement within it. So could you share any tips or approaches that promote communication across hierarchies and between teams? As you mentioned, like we had, that there is, needs to be dishonest feedback and honest yeah. communication like can you share some ways to improve it yeah sure so um you know covid has changed 
things, right? And and we might talk a little bit about that later. But you know, prior to COVID, I would have said, you know, use things like information radiators to you know radiate. Uh, what's going on within teams. So for when I've worked in offices in Singapore, for example, you know, we would have things like um, build radiators and you could walk by any team at any moment and see the health of their code. You could see what they were working on, you know, and that idea that the information's always being radiated in a physical environment. I think that's a wonderful concept. Um, since COVID, everybody's gone virtual. Everybody's working from home. And uh, I think we're trying to find the best ways to apply technologies that enable us to do that in, in a clever way. I think it's really quite difficult, actually, because we're all, all bombarded with alerts and nudges and emails. And I'm, I'm sure as, as students here, you get plenty of emails. You can only imagine what my inbox is like, you know, for dealing oh, with. So yeah. <laughs> so you got client challenges, you got internal challenges. And manning an inbox can actually become a full-time uh, job in its own right if you let it. By the way, don't. It, it's not work. It's email. Um, <laughs> But I would say it's, it's about trying to find a balance there. So some things, you know, uh, some principles, I would say, the ideas of chapters and guilds from that Spotify model, you know, if I was to generalize that, something like communities of practice and the idea of having communities and sharing uh, lessons, I think that that's something that is really important and remains even more important in a virtual world where lots of people are working from home. Um, generally avoiding emails to try to solve problems would be a principle, I would say. If you have a problem to solve, email should be the last communication medium that you try to use. Um, we use a lot of groups, Teams chats or Skype chats, depending on your, or I'm, I'm sure others might use Slack, but effectively whatever your instant messaging platform is, you know, the idea that you can have a dynamic group that you establish with just the three or four key people to solve a problem, establish it, it should be ephemeral, it should disappear afterwards. I mean, that's quite a good idea and, and works for us sometimes. Um, I would say there's no substitute for face-to-face meetups um, as, as the world comes back to life, as you know, less and less people are wearing masks in environments like such as this. I think we should be encouraging each other in a safe way at a pace that people are comfortable with to come back and do more face-to-face communication. Um, Even just on that, so like you've probably come from an environment where you're still doing a lot of work virtually. So like pre-pandemic, Obviously, these video communication services existed already, and I'm sure for a global company, you would have been using them. But did pre-pandemic, did your day-to-day involve, or even for colleagues, did it involve a lot of traveling to the other places to keep those relations, or were you already virtual pre-COVID? The vast majority of people in my industry were not virtual pre-COVID. Now, it depends on your location. So uh, there was this concept of being onshore versus being offshore. And what onshore really meant was you're in the same physical room as the client and you were helping them day to day. And what offshore meant was you were generally in a a different delivery center, perhaps in India, in the Philippines, or maybe somewhere in in Eastern or Central Europe. Um, And that, you know, somehow there was almost like a tiering, you know, within the client's mind that is because people uh, display proximity biases, right? And people uh, you know the nearer you are to someone the more trust you identify with them so there was probably a two-tier system within consulting where onshore was regarded as higher value and offshore was regarded as maybe commodity one of the things i've observed especially over the last two or three years is that's totally changed that actually um 
we're all working from home or we're all offshore or whatever way you want to think about it right now. And I work with EY and within EY, we look at our global delivery centers, not as places to kind of do cost arbitrage or to drive down costs, but really to bring in global sets of skills that are almost impossible to identify in the local market, whether that's technical skills, domain skills, um, or skills specific to a problem. Hmm, interesting. Thanks so much. Okay, so just to move on to, we're talking about these different forms of Agile and different methodologies. Yeah. From your experience, how do we go from like day X, we don't have it, and then day Y, it, it, it's there like how does this actual process of starting it work is that difficult to implement and change or it's take importance of the communication from management to say this is what we need to do or is there any specific insight on that yeah lo- loads of thoughts right um you you've probably studied the kinefin model so david snowden complexity theory uh c-y-n-e-f-i-n okay perhaps one we can we can do a note later um but in the Kinefin model, it, it separates all problems in the world or that you will encounter into four different categories. And it, I think it's obvious, complicated, complex, and chaotic. But anything to do with humans really tends to be in the complex or chaotic um, quadrant. And, <laughs> and that means that any question like the one you asked me, the, a, a grown-up answer really has to start with the words, it depends, yeah. okay? And, <laughs> and that's, that's really annoying, right, when you ask someone a direct question and you're looking for an answer. But the answer is, well, it depends. It depends on the context. Um, so I did, I, I thought of, of a couple of notes on this topic, right? So um, there's a good book by Simon Sinek, which is very accessible, which is called Start With Why. And I would really recommend people read that book and understand what's behind it. Um, but when you're when you have a conversation with a client or with a company and they say, we want to go on an agile transformation, you really need to start with asking the question, why? And then you need to keep asking the question, why, to really figure out what is it that they're trying to get at. Um, I think what you can then do is you can kind of co-create a vision, right, that says, okay, we understand why we're doing this. What does good look like? And, and trying to bring that to life with some stories is actually really effective. So what will it feel like in this new organization when you are, quote unquote, transformed? I'll put an asterisk on the end of that because, you know, we're never done transforming. Um, but we've used approaches like, you know, articulating a day in the life. So what will a day in the life feel like for a customer, for an engineer, for an executive within the company and trying to bring that to life because, you know, we're, we're kind of built for stories, right? So I think that's one thing we can do. The other thing that's very useful is to, to do a bubble sort. So you've probably come across many different sorting algorithms, but a bubble sort on maybe what are the most important things to the key stakeholders. So, for example, is speed more important than quality? Is risk management more important than speed? Is innovation more important than everything? And what, because if you say to a, an exec or a team of people, you know, which of these things are the most important? The first thing you'll see is uh, a real divergence in opinion, right? Because we all have our own priorities. So helping an exec team within a client get a view on that um, can be really useful. Um, I mean, the other thing that it can do is, there's a phrase that says, if everything is equally important, then everything is equally unimportant, right? So if you can really force the client to say, these are the priorities, that then informs you maybe which framework or which methods or which patterns might be the right ones to try. Um, And I I think, you know, 
in a complexity model, you, you need to try things and you need to fail fast, you need to learn and then you need to adapt. One other thing that I'd say, sorry, two other things that I'd say on this. Um, there's a concept of a magnet model, which is you start with a pilot or you start with, with something small, you prove out these concepts and you use empirical evidence to show that that is valuable, to show that it's better. And you kind of build a bit of a brand around the new thing. And what that can do then is it can, you can start to pull in additional teams or additional services or additional capabilities. And uh, that can be a way to you know, expand through the organization in a kind of organic, bottom-up way. And the last thing that I would say is about engineering excellence, okay? So uh, if you don't have engineering excellence within an organization, the chance of you being able to truly transform and to really apply one of these agile or newer delivery methods, you're, you're heading for a failure, right? So you need truly modern architecture, modern engineering, and, and high degree of quality and high degree of focus on building the right thing and building it right the first time. If you have all of those things with some strong leadership, I think you're, you're could be onto a good path. But you can see it's a, it's a complex question when it needs complex answers. And it depends. Yeah. And it depends. <laughs> so as you mentioned, we are really very chaotic, chaotic begins. And one of the things I really want to dig up a bit is like, so we are talking about finding the why, answering the why. Yeah. But what happens when the people don't want to ask for the why? That, they, that you find resistance within the peers, within these teams trying to implement Agile. And also, what happens when they want to answer a why that is too complex, like the why of life, everything in the universe? How do you manage this kind of resistance and expectations between a company? Yeah, I, I think you just have to do it one person at a time, one conversation at a time really just try to understand people, understand their drivers, understand what they're getting at. Um, you know, there's no magic wand for resistance. There's no magic wand for confusion. Um, I think you just have to encourage robust, honest, transparent conversation. I think the other thing to do is to understand how people are incentivized because generally as humans, we behave in a way that we are incentivized to. So for example, within an exec team, understanding bonus structures, understanding OKRs or KPIs or these things that are set at an individual and organization level, I think they're very important to help you tease out some of those things. But um, okay, and any problem to do with humans is complex and, and is hard. And, uh, you know, the, in some senses, the, the technology is, is kind of the easy bit of it, right? Because it's more, well, it's binary, unless we're going to go into quantum or, or some other You can understand machines, but you cannot understand people. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And I'm, I'm probably um, displaying my own biases there, perhaps. But, uh, yeah, that would, that would be my yeah. view. So uh, what do you say to the statement that ideas and solutions are easy, that the real problem is finding the actual real problem? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I've been thinking about this. Um, I, I work with EY, and one of EY's major strap lines is the better the question, the better the answer, the better the world works, right? So the organization that I work for, we fundamentally believe that framing questions in the right way is essential to finding you know, the real heart of issues. Um, as I look around at a macro level, I think the biggest problems facing us as a society or as a, as a planet are actually quite apparent. And I think they are about peace and they're about sustainability. Um, this podcast is probably not about those topics. 
but if I was to say, you know, when you're given a problem to solve, using those why techniques, you know, the, the five whys, using the Ishikawa model, um, understanding the intent that people have and focusing on the outcomes, I think that's a good way to, to go about it. And the last thing I would say, and I've learned this the hard way, is when you're interacting with teams, don't assume you're the smartest person in the room. Don't assume that your solution is better than the one that they could come up with. And the more you can give problems to teams and good problems, then the, the better likelihood you are to get quality solutions back. So avoid giving solutions and instead focus on giving um, smart problems. Does that help? Yeah, no, that, that, that's very informative. Especially, especially the five ways. I already heard before that one, and it's nice to see that it's actually quite used. Yeah, I mean, I've got a four-year-old at home, and he, <laughs> he, he plays the five ways game every single day, right? So it's, uh, it's, it can be frustrating, but it's actually a great discipline to try to get to the core of things. Yeah, I suppose like in the world of today with social media and people wanting their news so quickly, this process of actually thinking about why or re even just reading a full article and thinking critically about it is perhaps being lost so it's very important to for us as consultants within any field of consulting financial for you or any other ones to understand the problem and really focus on that problem definition phase yeah i i, I agree with that i mean i gave up social media three or four years ago um i think one of the last things the straw that broke the camel's back was that Netflix documentary, was it Social Dilemma, something like that. Oh, yeah, um, I remember seeing that. I was done. I was already out, and, and that was it. Actually, quite a few years previously, when I lived in Singapore, I went, I ritualistically unfollowed people. I did five a day on Facebook. And <laughs> I turned to my wife one morning, and I said, I did it. I beat Facebook. You know, I, there's nothing on my news feed. And she said, no, Jeff, you've misunderstood what the point of social networks was. It wasn't to withdraw. Um, I do think, I mentioned earlier, we're, we're bombarded with content. We're bombarded with nudges. Uh, I think social media has its purposes, but um, it's, it's not a place to learn for me. Like if, if I want to learn, you're probably going to the intellectual dark web. You're probably going to Lex Friedman, Sam Harris, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Like I would rather spend three hours listening to a complex topic there than be jumping around the various different articles that, that people tend to spend time on. So I do think, you know, picking your topics and your interest areas and going deep, um, I think that's, uh, that's really quite important. If you're going to be, I mean, you have to be interested in your clients as a consultant, and equally you have to be interesting. And to have, and to have an interesting point of view, you're, you're not going to pick that up on the Daily Mail, right? You, you need to go a little deeper. Yeah, of course. No, it's so important just to... Well, one, come across as informants, but two, come across as like communicative and able to actually have that conversation or that relationship. So, yeah, absolutely, that's critical. I guess from your point of view, now that we're through COVID and obviously we're not finished, it's an ongoing process. Are EY trying to push back towards the traditions that were or is it a process of evolution with you know, communication, even with clients specifically? Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the corporate answer first, and then I'll give you the, maybe my, my anecdotal answer, let's say. Uh, so within EY, we've launched something called EY Hybrid, and it's not mandating anything, right? It's effectively saying, we'll work with you as an individual, and you should work with your team and your team lead and your client, and you should find the working patterns that work for you. 
Um, and those things might be fluid. So depending on where you are in a project or which assignment you're on or which phase you're on, maybe doing things from home makes more sense or maybe coming to an office, doing things at a whiteboard, you know, that kind of rich communication formats, maybe they are more appropriate. Um, so there's been a big push around that. And I think our employees and our, our clients alike, they uh, appreciate our flexibility and our openness to it. Um, an anecdotal story would be, uh, you know, everybody's at home, really. I think, uh, you know, 80% of our people probably spend 80% of their time at home. And that applies to our clients as, as well as our staff. Um, I would observe that people are working harder to produce probably the same output. And, uh, you know, so that means people are spending maybe an extra four hours, six hours a week uh, to, to get to the same outcomes. Um, that's probably driven by... Um, there's, there's so much less informal communication. And sitting in an office environment in particular, I w I've always found, you know, you overhear a conversation by accident and a little bit of it goes in and then you have a little bit more context or the opportunity to go out to lunch with somebody from a different team and understand what they're doing. Or even, dare I suggest, beers or non-alcoholic drinks after work. <laughs> I think they're always a really good place to kind of pick up the truth of what's, what's going on on the ground. And I think... Um, in a virtual environment, all of those things are possible, but they have to be more deliberate and more considered uh, than than they kind of just happen naturally in a physical environment. Yeah, um, like we've probably all had enough of the like the Zoom, yeah, the, yeah, the Zoom lunch or the Zoom meetups. It's like everyone did it at the start of lockdown, but I don't think it's something that's yeah. great going forward. Yeah, I, I think the other thing I would say is um, there's there's an expectation of being always on and being always available. I mean, for me to come and speak with you here today and be away from email and be away from Teams for two hours, that took a lot of proactive management and stakeholder management and expectation management. So mm -hmm. it just shows you there is this culture now of kind of always being on. I think the default now is that there are meetings for everything. So whereas in the past you would just ping someone and you would have a chat, the default now is a 30-minute uh Microsoft Outlook calendar invite to solve any problem, big or small. And, and that can't be right. I mean, not all problems uh, are 30 minutes of, in nature, right? Some are two minutes in nature, some are four hours in nature, but the default seems to be 30 minutes. And the last thing I would say is the opportunity for learning. So there's a concept of entrainment. And the example I've heard is about three grandfather clocks. If you stand them uh, next to each other on a, on a floor, and if you set one of them in motion, that actually through the resonance, through the ground, and maybe the um, air pressure changes, that actually the other two grandfather clocks start to swing in, the, in unison with the first grandfather clock. And if you apply this to humans, what I've seen, and especially for more junior team members, you know, they really need to be around those people that have more experience to be able to pick up the informal cues, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with negotiation. And all of those things you would pick up from sitting next to your boss or your team lead in a physical environment, they become all the more difficult to pick up in a remote environment. So I think it's a, it's a real challenge in a virtual environment for us to be conscious of that and find ways to kind of proactively attack and address that type of problem. And now on the other side of the coin, with all these trends like the 5G, like the metaverse, virtual reality, how do you think yeah. things are going to be changing for consulting, for forming teams, for interacting with everyone in the, work, in the workforce? Yeah, um, I mean, that's the broadest of broad questions. And uh, <laughs> I, I have a couple of thoughts, right? I think the first thing I would say is that uh, geopolitical issues and the war 
on Ukraine or the war in Ukraine that we see at the moment, I think that that will um, proliferate and increase focus on risk management for organizations throughout the world. Uh, risk management of all type, all types. So whether that's supply chain risk management, credit risk management, uh, market risk management, all different types of risk management. Um, so I, I see that that is probably here to stay. I don't know, I'm not a political analyst, I don't think we're going back into a Cold War context, but I do think that there is, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely going to be an increased heightened focus on risk. Uh, I think sustainability is a key focus for EY. I think sustainability is about to go mainstream. I think unless the world collectively acts and acts quickly, um, I, I see that there's going to be some major problems. And I think the technology and, and technology consulting in particular has a really important role to play to enable that. I'm not an expert on, on metaverse. Um, I find some of the use cases so interesting. And I think I'm getting old because I'm not sure I would apply them. Um, but the idea that you can order a beer online and it appear to your front door in two minutes, uh, you know, I, I'll, try <laughs> yeah, I, I'll try it. Yeah, I'll try it. Believe us when you see it, like that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in, uh, in in cryptocurrencies. I'm quite interested in uh, central bank digital coins. I'm quite interested to see how that develops. I think there's going to be a tug of war between the idea of decentralization and centralization. I'm not sure who's going to win out on that war. I think it's one to really keep an eye on. Um, and then thinking about the post-pandemic and maybe a little bit about you all, um, I think work habits are, have changed fundamentally. And I'm not sure if I was to do a straw poll around this room, how many of you really like the idea of going into an office and spending 40 or 50 hours a week in there for the next 40 years of your life? I'd be surprised that that is the default in your lives. And I think that we've talked about some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that that'll create. I think that's really important. Um, I think the Generation Z, and sometimes talked about unkindly as the gig economy, I think that that concept will mean that the idea of being tied to one or two organizations for your career, I think that will be less and less common. I think that drives up problems on attrition, which means people resigning, um, and it also drives up problems with knowledge management and how to maintain continuity of service for, for clients and others. So that's something uh, to, to think about. Um, but I've got two other things to say, right? One is about attracting and retaining talent. So I'm not sure if you look at me how much you would really like to have my life, okay? My life is pretty hard. I work pretty hard with pretty demanding clients. Um, but I think it's so important that whether it's consulting or technology consulting or financial services, that we continue to um, be a really interesting, attractive industry and that we focus on attracting and retaining and developing top talent like the talent that I see here in front of me today. And the last thing that I would say on this topic is that I think learning, learning is absolutely key, right? You, you all are here, you're learning in a formal setting. I think we all need to really transition to that model of being lifelong learners. It's something I've spoken about before. So I'm halfway through my own technology MBA that I'm taking with EY at the moment. I'm doing that for my personal development, but also to set an example to show our people that lifelong learning is truly important. There, there used to be a phrase that said the big fish eat the small fish. I think the modern application of that is that the fast fish eat the slow fish. So for all of you and for all of us, I think we need to be the fast fish and we need to learn faster and better than uh, anybody else out there. 
Honestly, uh, it's, that's really fascinating, especially because uh, since we are coming from technology business background, we sometimes um, often forget how real world aspects like uh, climate change, um, geopolitical conflicts can really affect us indirectly in many different ways. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think as a consultant, you need to be really focused on what's what are the macro things that are impacting your client. Because what you can do is you can be their eyes and ears on the ground. Sometimes if you imagine you're a CIO or a CTO for a bank, you've got a full list of problems in front of you that you need to try and solve. Maybe the last thing you're thinking about is how is sustainability going to drive electricity prices, going to drive my data center costs? Should I be accelerating our move to cloud? And that's a frivolous example. Like there are so many things that are out there that could influence strategy and influence roadmaps. So I think as a consultant, you need to be interested in the world around you, and that will in turn make you more interesting to your clients. Uh, I think we're almost running out of time, but uh, I just want to ask like one thing just to wrap everything up. Sure. Like you mentioned all of the principles of uh, the Agile model and from Spotify. What will be like the top principle that you will suggest to us to keep in mind always? That mm. would you be the one that you will try to maintain? Yeah, that, that's like picking your favorite child, isn't it? <laughs> um, that's a Hobson's choice kind of thing. I, I do think being able to respond to change over following a plan, I think that will become increasingly important in an increasingly chaotic world. That's not to say plans are not valuable, but I think the idea that we, um, as humans and as teams and as technology platforms, the idea that we're ready to adapt to whatever the world throws at us, I think that's probably the thing that I would say springs to mind. So EY is a learning organization, and I would strongly recommend, as you look to the next phase of your careers, think about joining an organization that is a learning organization. I think that's what will help you be that fast fish I talked about. Okay, great. Well, it was a pleasure speaking to you, Jeff. I thank you for listening. The music is Impulse by Ben Prunty from his album Chromatic T-Rex and used with his permission.